Good morning. I just told I need an EKG after that. I'm like, my heart, my heart. Man, have you ever been reading a book and it's so good and it's getting super intense, but you can't even handle it, so you jump to the end just to see how it ends? Or you've been watching maybe a Netflix show, and uh, not that I've been doing that lately. I have. Um, and I sometimes, when I don't know what's going to happen to a character that I love, and it looks like something bad's about to happen, they do these little like blurbs, these little info pieces right next to the episode. And I'll just scroll down to the end of the season to make sure everybody's okay. Or maybe you record football games because you're at church and football's on. And you record it, but then you check the score to see if it was even worth watching at all. <laughs> Or some of you actually probably watch some TV reality shows and you can actually get the answer to who wins or is chosen in the end and you can't deal with the weekly not knowing. So you look up who wins. Who are those people in here? Raise your hand if you are one of those people. Victoria, my sister, yes. She's like, I, do you want to know who wins? No, no, it ruins it. But what I think what happens is, is that people want to know the outcome so they can kind of find comfort in the now. They can watch what's happening. They can get to know these characters. They can see the suspense happening and, and not sure what's going to take place. But if they already know what's going to happen, it makes going through it just a little bit easier. There's some type of comfort that people find in that. And this is where we're headed this morning, a place where we should prepare our hearts for the ending, to give time, to set aside, to be focused, eliminate distractions, and prepare for the ending, the outcome. This morning, we're kicking off the first Sunday of Advent, which is awesome. I've never gotten to preach in Advent before, so this is a first for me, and I'm really excited and honored. And what we think of Advent, Advent means the coming. So the Advent season is the coming of the Lord. And we wait in anticipation of Christmas. You remember when you were a kid? Christmas, like, was way bigger of a deal than it is when you're older. I mean, you cannot wait till Christmas morning. You see your parents come in with maybe a bag. It might be a grocery bag. It doesn't matter. It could be your present. Do you know what I'm saying? And you just want to know where they put that bag. Is it your present? Is it your sibling's present? And if it is your sibling's present, do you tell them what you saw or not? We ran into that a lot growing up. You check the presents under the tree if it has your name on it. You check it. You try to figure it out. If you don't, then you're just like, whatever. You just toss it to the side if it's not your name. What we did growing up, (laughs) actually, all four of us kids, so there's four siblings in my family. I'm the second one. What we did growing up, on Christmas Eve, we all slept in the same room. So it was Sydney and I, my older sister, and then Tori and my younger brother, Colton, would uh, sleep on, we call them pallets from Texas. I don't know what you guys call them here, but they're pallets on the floor. (laughs) And we would stay up, and we would watch a Christmas movie together, usually Elf. And... Tori and Colton would stay up almost all night, but Sydney and I, as we got older, we would be the first ones out. It would go Sydney, me, Tori, then Colton. Colton would probably stay up all night. You could wake up at any night, any hour of the night, and Elf would still be playing, and Colton would be sitting there like this. And then we're just like, finally, he turned off the TV. 
guess who's waking us up first thing in the morning? Colton. He cannot wait. He's the youngest one. And Tori. They're just over there. They cannot wait. Sydney and I are like trying to just like leave us alone. Like we just want to sleep. Dad said we can't go out until 7 a.m. anyways. Does any of your parents like put the time? Like you cannot come out of your room until 7 a.m. We thought it was so they could sleep, but we found out later is so they could still put our presents out. <laughs> still. I mean, Santa. Sorry. <clears throat> Sorry if there's kids in here. Okay. <laughs> there was an anticipation, an excitement where we couldn't even sleep. And we wanted to wake up first thing just to see what was under the tree. And in our family, the first thing we would hear is the third day Christmas album. Still to this day, third day blaring, and that's how you know it's Christmas Day. You're welcome. You guys should try it this year. The first coming, when Jesus is born in a major, this is the time of the year that we celebrate that. But what we come to today is not just the focus of the first advent, the first coming of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas. It's actually calling to look to the second advent, when he is to come again. The end of the story. So if you're wondering what happens, if you're one of those people who needs to know the end of the story, that's where we get to land today. We get to know so that we can find comfort now because we know what's to come. The second advent of our king. I know that some of you freak out about talking about this. I do sometimes. I'm like, no, don't talk about the second coming. Anybody who has had trauma from left behind books in this room. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I was in junior high when those things came out and it was terrible. It was, if you want to know how to terrorize your children, make them read those books. It's all about when Jesus comes back and the end of the world. If you don't know what the Left Behind series is, that's what it's about. Um, how many of you, besides me, since I prepared it, have thought about Jesus coming back this week? It's not a lot of us, but it is some. And to be honest, if I wasn't speaking on this, I don't know how often I actually would think about it. And it was truly convicting for me this couple weeks as I've been preparing. So to fully appreciate that, we're going to go to Matthew um, chapter 24. And I'm going to pray for us as we dive in today. Chapter 24, verses 36 through 44, if you want to flip there. Well, Heavenly Father, I just praise you for this time together that we can dive into your word, that we meet together, that we Grow together, Lord God, that your presence is here, that we may know you better, that we may love you more. Awaken us, Lord. Awaken us now. Prepare our hearts, not only for this season, but the season to come. And let our hearts be open to receive all that you have for each one of us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are diving into Matthew chapter 24. Um, one of this background is in the Olivet Discourse, and um, which means that this is um, from the Mount of Olives. So it is at the week that Jesus is about to head to the cross, and he is speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. So the Olivet Discourse is Matthew 23 through 25, and the disciples are asking about the end times. They're wondering what's going to happen, what are the signs, how will we know that the end of days is near? And you know you put these little things in your Bible so you can flip to the right place, but sometimes it doesn't work. And so what we dive into here is close to the middle 
um, in the end of this discourse in verse 36, we'll start there. And Jesus is speaking in this. And he says, now concerning the day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the son, except the father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the son of man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a handmill, one will be taken, and one left. Therefore, be alert, keep watch. Since you don't know what day your Lord is coming, but know this. You don't know what day, but know this. If the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Merry Christmas. At first, you can look at this and and you can kind of be filled with terror or fear. Um, Honestly, the first times that I've read this, it, it can be a little unsettling. But Jesus isn't trying to scare his disciples. He's trying to tell them to be ready, to be prepared, to stay the course, to keep your eyes fixed on him because he is coming back. And honestly, if I was one of the disciples and Jesus is sitting there telling me that, uh, he was leaving, I would want to know, how do we know when you're coming back? Are you coming back? <laughs> I just want to know how, how do I know it's about to happen? Do you promise me I get to see you again? This is right before the cross. And now he's telling them to go and tell these people, because what we need to know is if this is really going to happen, if we believe that the first advent has happened. And as Josiah was saying earlier, Israel had been waiting all of these years for the Messiah. And now the church has been waiting all of these years for the return of the king. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we're waiting? And if we truly believe he's coming back, then we should truly be out telling everyone that he is coming back. To go out, the book of Matthew is written so that we We'll go and evangelize, tell the good news. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the whole book ends with this. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The very end of the age is when he comes back. He promises he is with us always until the day he comes back to get us. That's good news. (laughs) That is really good news. So we must go and tell so that they are not left behind. So what are we to be? Verse 44 says to be ready. Are we ready? For his return. Are we focused? And it says in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and having parties all until the flood just like took them out. Business as usual until all of a sudden the flood happened. Now let me say this, Noah probably took him 
I looked up some different numbers, but probably, best guess, 55 to 75 years to build that ark. Do you think they had time to hear about crazy Noah building an ark for a flood that's coming? They had time to prepare, but they chose to just be drinking and eating and marrying and giving in marriage. And now those things are not bad. We have to eat. We have to drink to survive. We can get married. It is something that is talked about throughout scripture, but they were doing it and not even preparing for the fact of what was to come. It was like a thief in the night. And it is in Genesis 6, if you want to read that story into 7, about Noah and the ark. But they weren't paying attention to the signs towards salvation. They were focused on the temporal and on the physical. Jesus goes on to say, two men in the field, one were taken, one was left. Two women grinding a handmill. I don't know what that is, but I'm sure it was hard work. And they were sitting there, one was taken and one was gone. One was left. This reminds me of when I was in eighth grade. So remember when I was telling you about that Left Behind series stuff? We went through the book of Revelation in Sunday school as 13 and 14-year-olds. And then on Wednesday night, my dad was a youth pastor. Not sure if you knew that, but he was a youth pastor back in the day. And I was in his youth group. I was in eighth grade. My dad, on a Wednesday night, we had, we had a youth in the gym. And we were sitting out there, and my dad is speaking on the rapture like on this verse, and he is like, and one will be taken, and one will be left, and one will be working, and one will be left, and like, I'm just like, you know, he's just like going, 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 all of a sudden, lights off, trumpet, screams, and I automatically just go, and I was like, okay, at least two people got left behind with me, I'm a pastor's kid, I was supposed to be taken, and it is like all of a sudden it screams and then it's like silence and then the lights come back on and all of the leaders were gone (laughs) talk about a heart attack okay I was going to do that to you guys but luckily for you there's natural lighting in this place it would have never worked but in that gym where it was pitch black it worked and I'll ne- anybody in that room will never forget that moment. Never. He thinks it's hilarious. But the thing is, <laughs> now it's funny, now that I know it's a joke. <laughs> but see, it wasn't scary for him. And it wasn't scary for the leaders who were in on it. And the people who had to flip the lights because they were prepared for what was about to happen. No one knew the exact minute the light was going to go out until he said the exact words that he needed to say for that trumpet to blow and the lights to go out. They weren't scared for about what was about to happen. Honestly, they were probably pretty excited about it. (laughs) But it left such a deep impression on me. How scary that would be. I wanted to be one of the ones that got taken. I didn't want to get left behind. I don't want any of us to still be here at the trumpet call. But Jesus says, it's a thief in the night. He goes on to say, if you were going to be robbed, you would have, you would have kept watch. If you knew your house was going to be robbed, you would have stayed up. But it came like a thief in the night. Jesus warns us a bit against distractedness, being distracted. 
Anyone feeling a little distracted lately? This world, whether you're, whether you're opting into it or not, there is just busyness and things going on all around us. And I am convinced that not only it is amoral, it doesn't mean that it's automatically bad, but I do think that it is a tactic of the enemy to distract us. With all the news, all of the media, all of the social media, all of the busyness, you have to go run here, go do this. This time of year tends to be the busiest time of year. And it's the main time of year we really need to slow down and remember, refocus, to keep the main thing, the main thing at this time of year. To set us up for a year of doing so. Busyness, how's it going? If you ask somebody how's it going, what's the one thing they say? I'm busy. We're all busy. Distractions. I mean, have you ever been in a car accident? And I've been in 13. (laughs) I've been in many, many accidents. Every one of them my fault. Okay, moving on. The last one, though, was bad. And the last one happened because I was distracted. Not on my phone, just let you know, it was not on my phone. But I looked down and I found this Starbucks card and I saw it in the console and I was trying to clean up my car while I'm driving. Has anybody tried to multitask? And I saw it and there was this little heart sticker on it. I'm like, why is there a heart sticker on my Starbucks card? And I was looking at it and it was like a bubble heart sticker and I was like, cool. And I'm like, who gave me this? And I looked up, all of a sudden a car right in front of me just because I wanted to figure out the bubble star, the bubble heart on my Starbucks card. I was distracted in the moment. I wasn't focused on what was ahead of me, on the task at hand. I decided to try and multitask what was going on. And not only did I get in that accident, I totally, well, I totaled the car, (laughs) totaled the car, and then had to go get a new car. There's repercussions for when we are not focused, when we are not ready, when we are distracted. People, people are good in our lives, but sometimes we need to learn how to set boundaries so we're not so distracted. Because we have instant, like instant messaging, whether it's text or social media, Facebook, whatever it might be, email, our boundaries have been lessened. And we feel like when we send something to someone, we deserve a reply back in our time frame. But what we're doing is, is that we're, some people, you don't have a clue what's going on in that person's life at that moment, but you're expecting that back, or I'm expecting that from them. And what they could be trying to do is just enjoy where they are right then. It's nothing against you, but it's everything for what they're in right then. Celebrations, Christmas, it's about family. Let's make it about the people that are important in our lives. Reach out, but don't get distracted just trying to please everyone because that is not what the purpose of this season is for. I want to take that pressure off of you today. Have you guys ever, I try to do that to people, whether it's false guilt or false pressure. I just like take it off their shoulder and just bat it away. <laughs> See ya. Because we, we, if we get distracted in this, if we get sidetracked in this, then we can't be on mission to go and tell the world the good news because everything else seems more important, more urgent to us in that moment than telling people that Jesus came as a babe in a manger, that he was raised 
day by day, year by year, and lived a sinless, perfect life, and then went to the cross for us, for our sins, when he didn't have to. And he poured out his blood for us. He was buried, and then three days later later resurrected, and then ascended to the Father, and he sent us the Holy Spirit. This is the good news. This is what we're celebrating, because without Christmas, there's no Easter. Without Easter, there's no Christmas. And guess what? Without all of this, there's no second coming. So we need to be focused on what is ahead. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and protector of your faith. This season, I think we do a little, need to do a little more being and a little less doing. And that's what the Lord convicted me of in this past week. Jesus goes on in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. And um, just for time's sake, I'm going to recap. But he goes on to say this. There are, there's a parable. So there's three parables in Matthew 25. The parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and goats. One is about being distracted and unprepared. One is about not working diligently with what God has given you right now. And the other one is about showing mercy to others. Evangelize. Go and tell them. The first one with the ten virgins, there's five. It says um, that the bridegroom, I'm just going to read it. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them are foolish and five are wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oils and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oils. Our lamps are going out. Well, no, they replied, they may, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in to meet him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, stay alert because you do not know the day or the hour. So once again, Jesus is saying, keep watch, stay alert. Jesus was concerned with his disciples falling asleep. It reminds me of the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's praying and he's praying and he's praying so hard that he's dripping blood, but his disciples wouldn't stay awake and pray with him. And this is in Matthew 26. He just says, stay awake, pray, be alert so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They were drowsy. (laughs) The first was distracted and these ones are drowsy. They're exhausted people, exhausted. We are an an exhausted people. And let me say familiarity with Jesus and the story of Christmas can breed laziness in our spiritual lives. Familiarity can breed laziness. I'm praying that this season is new to you. Let it be new to you. This story of Jesus coming to earth for you. 
And let this idea that he's coming back for you excite you. Be waiting in anticipation, not in a place of fear, but be alert and watchful. Ready for him to come back at any moment. At any moment. Julius Caesar had this whole tactic down. He, he whenever his soldiers were out, um, whenever he had them stationed out, he knew the exact time that he would send people out on a battle plan. He knew exactly when they were going to go, but he would never tell the soldiers when they were leaving. Why? Because they always had to stay ready to go to fight in the war ahead. He never wanted them to get lazy thinking, well, we have until 5 p.m. He wanted them ready, waiting for the command to go and to fight. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be alert. And in Romans 13.11.12, it says, Do this. Understand, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. This armor of light, this this place of hope to get out of the darkness. And I just keep thinking about these five foolish virgins who didn't have enough oil and they were trying to live off of somebody else's oil. How often do we try to live off of somebody else's faith? No matter how much we want to point you in that way, you can't live off of my faith as much as I can live off of yours. But guess what? I read this this week and it was amazing. It says, even when we are faithless, he is always faithful and he is faithful to you. Hallelujah. Even when I am faithless, he is faithful and he is faithful to me. Thank you, Jesus. That even in those times when I feel like I can't do this, I'm tired, I'm drowsy, I'm falling asleep, I'm not sure if this is really going to happen, I'm tired of continuing on in the fight, he will remain faithful. He is there. And even if I'm faithless, he is faithful. But the other thing, there's distractedness, there is drowsiness. And another thing that can keep our focus off of him is despair. Despair means lack of hope. And I think of the five virgins, the foolish ones that didn't have their, their oil. They were, actually had no hope. The door was shut on them and the master said, I do not know you. But I'm here to tell you today that he has not come back yet and you still have hope. You have hope of the coming day. Your situation can be better. He can still do a work in your life. You have hope. There is no reason for us to be in despair. And as I think of despair, I think of two sides of one coin. I think of there's numbness when you're in despair, you know, and you're just like, you're like, I don't want to feel anything. Anything just to not think about it. Because with distraction and drowsiness, you're forgetting something. But in numbness, it's like, you, you can't even, you can't forget about it. It's just like, I want to do anything to take away the memory of this. We are in a world... <laughs> of trying to find comfort and numbing, whether it's social media, news outlets, alcohol, pornography, relationships. We are trying to find comfort in places 
that will never bring us fulfillment. C.S. Lewis says this, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and in the end, despair. Often we seek comfort instead of just trying to find the truth, and the truth is Jesus Christ. It says that when he comes and the clouds split, split open, he is going to have two banners across him, and it's going to say, faithful and true. True. To seek the truth and you will find comfort, but try to find comfort and you will find neither comfort or truth. So let's lean in today. If that's where you find yourself, lean in to the truth of who he is. And the other side of that coin is paralyzation, where you just can't move. You can't think about anything else. You can't move forward. You can't do anything because all you are consumed with is this thought this relationship, um, losing a loved one, a loss of a job, of a house. You've had an argument. You've been replaying the argument you wish you had. Anybody do that? Me. You cannot move forward because you're stuck in the past. You are paralyzed in that moment. The irony of all of this Because Jesus wants us to be focused and to be ready, but when you're paralyzed, you can't be ready for what's ahead when you're constantly looking back here. He's saying, be focused. And the irony of this passage is I was paralyzed by this passage. Utterly paralyzed. Two years ago, in 2017, Jesus was coming back. On September 22nd or 23rd, no one knew the day or the hour, they said. I was actually in a horrible place. And I know that I haven't said this in front of a lot of people because it was such a really tough time in my life. And it seems absolutely ridiculous. But I was just like, oh my goodness. I started reading the scriptures. I started reading Revelation. I'm like, oh my goodness. He's going to come during the festival of the trumpets. And that's the only festival that hasn't been fulfilled. And it's going to, the trumpets are supposed to sound when Jesus comes back and the stars are arranged perfectly. I mean, I was literally could not move. I was paralyzed. All I could think about was the fact that Jesus was coming back September 22nd, 2017. We're still here, y'all. We're still here. How many people have lived through many times that Jesus was supposed to come back? (laughs) Yeah, you know, you know. I couldn't think about anything else. And mind you, I was in the middle of writing a Bible study that I wrote here um, a couple years ago. And it had, it was an 11-week Bible study on the women in Scripture, on women in Scripture, five Old Testament, five New Testament, and one, at the end, the Bride of Christ. And... I wrote the five of the Old Testament, but then I found out that Jesus was coming back September 22nd. And I was like, well, what's the point of finishing my Bible study? Why? Why would I finish a Bible study if no one's going to read it? And then I was like, and even if Jesus doesn't come back that day, something's going to get set in motion. And if the seven years of tribulation happen, then nobody's going to want to sit around during those seven years and read an 11-week, five-day Bible study on the women of Scripture. I could not write the rest of it. You can ask anyone. I I gave the last later because I couldn't even function. I lived with my sister at the time, poor soul. I would wake up every morning and tell her all of these things. 
But the cool part about it is I started evangelizing to everybody. I was like, you need, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? He's coming back. You have two weeks, two weeks to the day. I was like, <laughs> actually one time I was, Sarah, our children's pastor, had a shower here, a bridal shower. And this is in that little time, that little window. And I showed up when the bridal, like when they were cleaning up. You know why? I saw a homeless guy at QT. I thought he needs to know Jesus. And so I was like, I'm going to go tell him. And I went to go tell him. And then he started talking and his name was Michael, like the archangel. I was like, oh my gosh, is this an angel? And so <laughs> I'm like, here am I trying to start Jesus with an angel. Like, come on. And he like at first didn't have any clue about the Bible. And then all of a sudden he started quoting Old Testament scriptures to me. And I'm like, okay, this is strange. This is really an angel. So I stayed there that long because I didn't want to be the human who couldn't get an angel to convert. So I was like, they're all up there just kind of giggling at me. So I stayed there for two hours with Michael and never saw him again. Uh, but I, I didn't go to a bridal shower, a commitment because I was paralyzed. All I could think about, I was consumed. Yes, evangelize, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say you're going to be somewhere, be there. I was literally consumed by this. Poor Josiah, Dr. Dan, dad, everybody I worked with. But Dr. Dan came up to me and he's like, Allie, no one knows the day or the hour, only the father. Matthew 24, 36. So if they know the day, if they say that they know that day, guess what? It's not that day. Because if humans think they know, then God's going to be like, nope. Not that one. So my proposal this morning is that you guys think of a day every day until I get married. And then <laughs> he won't come back on any of those days. Oh, deal. There's a sign up sheet in the back. Uh, <laughs> Seriously, I'll make one. <laughs> It was the scariest time of my life. I couldn't see anything in front of me. There was only darkness. But I remember Beth Moore said this. We had a simulcast. She said, the scariest thing isn't darkness without light. It's having the light but seeing only darkness. The scariest thing isn't darkness without light. It's having the light, but seeing only darkness. See, I had the light inside of me and I was looking for God. I'm looking at the mountains. I'm crying. I'm like, how could you destroy these beautiful mountains? Every day. I'm not kidding you. If you think I'm joking, look how dramatic I already am in front of you. Now imagine how I am when you guys aren't around. I was crying all the time that he would do that. But then I realized in that moment, I even wrote in my journal and when Beth Moore said that, it was like, I need to look up. I'm seeing darkness because I'm looking around me and I'm looking here and I'm not looking up to the only one that can point me who is the light. My vision, be thou my vision. It, I wrote in here, 2016, 20, September 16th, a week before Jesus came back. <laughs> I lost my vision in this dark world. I was fighting to see you, God, but you have shown me. I didn't need a renewed vision per se. I need you to be my vision again. I was so focused on this world and its pain, I couldn't see you anymore. But I want to see you now in all ways, and I want to see your heaven come to this earth. And I wrote out the lyrics of Be Thou My Vision. 
And this song got me through that time. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joy, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. God wants to be your vision. He wants to give you vision. He wants to be your focus during this season. Not distracted anymore, but focused. Not drowsy, but alert. And not in despair, but full of hope. This world needs hope and we serve the God of hope. And the verse that got me through was Romans 15, 13. And it said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you what? Trust, trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, despair means there's not hope, but if you're with God and you're seeking his presence, he is the God of hope. And if you trust in him, he will overflow in you hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lean into him if this is where you find yourself today. And the beauty of finishing that Bible study, I ended on the bride of Christ. And what I discovered during that time is the Jewish wedding process that I'm going to close with you this morning in. See, when we read scripture and we look at the culture of that day, we can unpack in such a different way. It's like the more you discover and you see what was actually happening, then scripture becomes alive to you again. You start to see the sweetness of it, the creativity of God, the power of the scriptures. And as I started seeing the wedding process, I realized that the first thing that they would do is, let me back up. The reason why the bride of Christ is is that in Revelation, it says that Jesus is coming back from his bride. And the bride is the church. And so when we look at the wedding processional of the Jewish culture, let's keep in mind that Jesus is one day coming back from his bride, for his bride that he is talking about for us to be ready. So the first thing is, is they would negotiate a price. This is where the bridegroom would negotiate the price to purchase the daughter or the bride, and they would consider this maybe a dowry in some ways. I consider it, in this day and age, I just think of the guy paying for the date. Like, pay for the dinner. That's just a free dating tip. Just, you're welcome. That's actually not free, because for the guys, it's <laughs> going to double your dinner tab, and for the girls, it's free. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> This was negotiated. This was the price that they were paying, that they negotiated. The next step is the promise. So this is the part where the father and the son would go to the daughter's house, to the bride's house, knock on the door. And if she wanted to receive him, see, they already talked to her father. If she wanted to receive him, to hear more about what he has in store, they would go into the house and they would have dinner together and they would um, break bread and have wine. When they came to the end of the covenant agreement of the promise of what they expected, what was to come, they would both drink wine, one sip of wine. And this would, if they both drink, that means that they have agreed to the marriage. This is the engagement and the betrothal. So this is actually in that day more legally, more important and legally binding as the marriage itself. Because after this day, the groom would then go back to his father's house and not see her again until their wedding day. 
And then they, the groom says, I will not take a sip of this wine again until our wedding feast. So the groom could not have wine again until he was there at the wedding feast with the bride. So then the father and the groom would go back to the house and this would enter into the time of preparation. The, the groom would start to build onto the father's house. They didn't live just by themselves. They would build on top of these homes. If you go over there, you'll see how these homes are built. And then the, the groom will start building the house. It takes about a year or so to actually finish this process. So while he's doing that, the bride is over here and she would go through a certain process. She would have to go through repentance. Um, basically, I think of the book of Esther, if you want to go read that, there's a whole purification process. Repentance, baptism, purification of head, mind, body, soul, and they would learn how to be married during this preparation time. They're preparing for the forever with this person. So they would start to learn how to cook, how to clean, how to do these things to prepare themselves for marriage. Now over here, the groom is with the father and the father's like, okay, kind of looking done, but you're not done yet. The groom would oftentimes just say, hey, to the bride's family, it's getting close. P.S. We're almost there. So the, the bride's family would go and tell her, guess what? Uh, it's coming soon. Be ready. So the bride would prepare having two weeks of oil, two weeks of oil set aside. So the, and her bridesmaid would wait with her just in case the groom came. So whenever that was out, they'd get another two weeks of oil. So they were always prepared until the groom came. And the only person who could say that the groom could go and get his pride was the father when he decided that the house was finished and it was ready for the marriage. Only the father knew that moment. And he says, go and get your bride. It is done. It is prepared. Go and get her. So the groom and the groomsmen, which I think is fantastic, they would go out and the groomsmen would be blowing trumpets in the middle of the night to wake up the bride and the bridesmaid. And if the candles were lit in the windows, they would go. If they went out for whatever reason, they would not go because it means that she does not want to marry him. She could run away. She could change her heart or she ran out of oil. <laughs> You don't want to run out of oil. You want the light up in the window. And they would go with swords and pretend like they were stealing her like a thief in the night. So that's the processional. And they'd head back to the feast and they'd get her. And then all of a sudden there'd be a presentation of the groom and the bride and they would meet. And they'd be represented to each other. And it would be their wedding day and everybody would be invited to the wedding feast. See, Jesus paid the price. Oh, he paid the price. He came down that Christmas morning, however we want to word it. He knew from the beginning of time that he would have to do this. And he said yes to it. He said yes to his father deciding to send his only son into the world, not to condemn it, but to save the world through the blood spilled out for us on the cross. A babe in a manger. With all the pain, betrayal, and sorrow as he grew up, and heartache more than we could probably experience. 
Not sinning one time, but relying on the Father and the power of prayer and of the Spirit to be on watch and ready because he knew the enemy was prowling around like a roaring lion, ready to devour him. And he was alert and he knew that if he stayed in the Spirit and with the Father, that he did not have to fall into temptation. First Peter 1 18, 19 says this, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Jesus, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. His blood was the dowry, the payment for you and for me. His blood was paid for us. And he said, yes, you are worth it. Jesus made the promise. He goes with his father to each person's home and knocks on the door. Revelation 3.10 says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It is up to each one of us to decide whether we open the door or not. And if he comes in and you try to figure out what this covenant is all about and you say yes to it, then you would drink the cup of the wine. Symbolism of communion. You've agreed to the betrothal. You've agreed to this engagement period. You've agreed to this, the covenant, the blood poured out. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. it says, In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it and remember me, in remembrance of me. And so when we take communion, we remember the covenant and the promise, not only that he made for us, but the price that he paid for us. And also the promise that we have made to him to stay set apart, holy until he comes again. Every time we take communion, we remember the covenant as if we are already married. To live now as we will forever. But Jesus is preparing a place for you. When Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, he conquered death and the grave. Revelation says that he holds the key of death and Hades. He holds it. We don't have to be afraid of that. Jesus has already conquered death and the grave. So we have nothing to be afraid of. He has gone to prepare a place for us. John 14, two through three says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? He's gone to his father's house to prepare places for us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. And in the meantime, the bride should be going through her preparation process, one of repentance, one of baptism. This is the church. We should be repenting. We should be baptizing. And we should be baptized if we haven't yet to go and tell the good news. We should be readying ourselves, our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, and setting ourselves apart wholly because we are already taken. We've already been chosen and he's already committed himself to us. And we have the opportunity to say yes to this to prepare our hearts for how it's gonna be forever. We should start, go ahead and living and acting that way of how it's gonna be one day. Because at that hour, no one knows, not even the angels and the son, but only the father, Matthew 24, 36. Are you ready for his return? Are you ready for him to come back? 
Because see, one day the processional will begin. <laughs> the processional will begin in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. It says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. <laughs> Aren't you ready? That's so exciting. It's actually really exciting. Come Lord Jesus, come. This world is broken. We are broken, it's a hurting world, but guess what? He has all the hope and all the joy for you right now. He can bring heaven to earth, but there will be a day when there will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying, and there will be no more pain and no more death. And he says, he promises in Revelation 21 that he will make all things new. It is coming church, are you ready? Are you ready for his return? Are you prepared to be presented? in clothes of white with the groom in the banquet hall of heaven, ready to feast and party because the wedding has commenced. Revelation 19, seven, nine says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be a ray of, in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. <laughs> Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. If you are a follower of Jesus, call yourself blessed because you are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. He who testifies to these things, and it is Jesus who says this in Revelation 22, 20 through 21. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. And John writes, amen, in closing. So this is the spoiler alert. <laughs> this is the end of the book. He's coming back. He'll make all things new. There's hope to be had right now. So whether we're distracted or we're feeling drowsy or feeling numb or paralyzed, there is a God who sees you. He loves you, but he also wants to be your vision. He wants to show you the way during this season. He wants you to prepare your hearts to receive him in a new way. Because just as in the days of Noah, the flood came without warning people doing business as usual, but just as in the days of Noah, God grants deliverance for the righteous. For Noah, it was ark. For us, it is Jesus's blood poured out for us. Deliverance. So would you stand with me? We're gonna celebrate this time of year and, and I know it can be interesting to talk about the second coming during the first coming. But you see, that is the whole point is he's coming again. That's why we can really celebrate that he's already come once. Because now we know the next step in the process so we can be ready, waiting and focused. So it's time to refocus church, to prepare our hearts for this season, prepare our lives for the one to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. 
to a dying and broken world. We're gonna close with communion. Again, this is the sign of the promise of the covenant stage and you get to opt in to this. If you do not know Jesus as your personal savior, if you do not, if you've never accepted him into your heart, he is knocking. It says, I am knocking, but you get the option if you wanna open it or not. And if you're feeling like you want to this morning, he is ready and waiting to come in and eat with you. And that's where this comes in. So whenever you take communion, we just ask that you are a follower of Jesus, that you have accepted him. And if you have not, it simply says in Romans that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved right then, right there in your seat right now. Jesus is Lord. I believe it. Jesus is Lord. I am saved. I will be at the wedding supper of the lamb. Until that day, we take the communion to remember his death until he comes again, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. That's why we do it. To remember the covenant, not only that he made for us, but that we said yes to as we accepted him into our lives. But Paul also warns us that we should reflect to never go into the communion time hastily, quickly, without reflection. And so I'm gonna ask during this time, I'm just gonna ask a couple questions. Um, but before that, during, uh, after we pray, just logistically, we come down the side aisles uh, for communion and then you just take and dip or there's ones you can take back to your seat and just walk up the center aisle to go back. you find yourself this Advent season, the first day of December, the first day of Advent, whether you're feeling distracted or you're feeling fine, let's refocus this morning. So if you could close your eyes, I'm just going to ask you a few questions and whatever the Lord brings to your heart in that moment, Lord God, bring it to their minds and to their spirits. What distractions do you need to remove from your life to regain focus on Christ? What do you need to remove? What is exhausting you or making you drowsy or lazy in your faith? Is there something you're in despair about, paralyzed by, or just feeling numb? What is the thing that you are seeking comfort from? Hand that over to Christ. What do you need to add to your life to regain focus on him during this Advent season? What do you need to add? Is there something you need to ask forgiveness for before partaking in communion? Is there something you need to lay before him that he can forgive you for so you're not taking that with you into this? What is one thing you know you could ask forgiveness for right now in this moment? And what is one thing you are so thankful for that he came and died for you, that you already know that he's paid the price for? What is that one thing you are so glad that he took for you on that cross?
Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. So well, Lord, we just lift up this time for you. We set it aside, God. You've been here. You know um, what each one of us are going through, whether in we're in a place of distraction or, or just exhaustion or in despair, Lord God. Show us the hope that you have for us during this season. Emmanuel, God with us. Give us the courage to remove the things that we need to remove from our lives that are taking the focus of you. Give us the bravery to stop doing those things and replace it with the things that are good and are pure and are trustworthy and are true. Lord, show us what we need to add into our lives, more community maybe, more, more of your word, more of your, your, your music. <laughs> Lord, what is it that we need to make a conscious effort to add into our lives this season or one of serving, of others focused? Maybe it's just to remember that you are coming again. Lord, forgive us for the things that we have done, for the sins that we have committed against you, Lord God. But I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for mercy every day that we don't have to carry the weight of our sin anymore, that you have already taken it. You've removed it as far as the East is from the West and you remember it no longer. So neither should we, Lord God. Thank you for the ability to lay that at your feet today. And thank you for making us white as snow. Thank you for coming to earth and enduring all of these things so that we will be with you one day. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Come, Lord Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.